0: Sorry, I'm just laughing. Uh, uh, Kudos to whoever signed in as the bloofer lady. Uh, Definitely, definitely uh, uh, strong work there. Okay. Excellent. Wonderful. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Tonight is the launching day of the Dracula Seminar, which we've been looking forward to for a long time. Hi, thanks for joining me. Uh, For those of you who are new, let me draw your attention to uh, a couple things. First of all, um, there's um, just so that you know, I'm going to be interacting with people. A lot of people are commenting right now. Um, And uh, I want to make sure that you know how to get involved in that. On your GoToWebinar control panel, you will see a little questions box. Type something in there and enter it, and I will get it in real time. Uh, And as you see, I'll be following along with those as we go along through the class, uh, though... My apologies already for not uh, being able to address everything everybody says, because it's, it's, it's quite a lot. But I, I, I am going to be very interested uh, in your contributions and your feedback, and particularly, and we're going to be, of course, as always, looking at a lot of passages in detail uh, tonight. And, um, and I'm, I'm very interested in the observations that you make. Uh, so you can always take advantage of the opportunity as I'm reading each passage aloud, which I always do. Um, that's a great chance for you to be able to type out some of just the observations that you make. What jumped out at you about that passage? What do you think is particularly interesting? Um, so that's what we're doing. Uh, yeah, uh, Matthew, let me explain. Well, no, I, there is too much. Let me sum up. Um, he's, uh, Matthew Matthew's complaining about no session on Nosferatu. That was a tough one, uh, Matthew. I... I, I uh, I felt a bit of a wrench uh, in doing that. I wanted to get films from four, you know, very different periods, and of course Nosferatu. If I were to add a fifth, I would do Nosferatu. Uh, but um, I just I I felt like fourteen weeks was already probably pushing it for a comparatively short book. Uh, I mean, we're going to be doing that one you know, almost as long as we, you know, no, the same length, exactly, as we did Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which is four times as long, um, and has a whole mini series on it, so, and we talked about both, so, anyway, I'm, um, uh, I'm, we'll see, we'll, 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 we'll see, I, maybe I'll crack Matthew, but for now, I, I decided there's so many, so many things, um, and Brandon, yeah, I did want to include the one in memory of, of, Christopher Lee, absolutely. Okay, okay, okay. And, but thank you, uh, Arthur. You're reminding me. The second thing I said, there were two things I wanted to make sure to to, to point people uh, to uh, who are new. Uh, one is the questions box so that you can contribute to the ongoing conversation. The second uh, is the chat room. If you go to the Dracula page on the, on the Mythgard uh, Institute website, mythgard.org, and you go to the Dracula page, um, there's a little bouncing icon in the bottom right-hand corner, and you can join the live chat room and talk amongst yourselves with several of the other students that is not opt that is not uh, uh not mandatory um uh, i won't see anything that you put in there so that's for talking with other students behind my back that's for whispering in the back of the room uh and passing notes to each other uh if you if you want to be involved in sort of the uh the the, <laughs> the peanut gallery conversation that is happening uh in the in the chat room you are welcome to do that um so uh, yeah, Curtis says it's where the party is at. Exactly, exactly. So I just wanted to make sure that you uh, uh, that you uh, uh, knew where to where to find that and that it exists and everything. So all right, let's talk about Dracula. So um, I want to, um, okay, I want to begin first by looking at the epigraph that we get at the beginning of the book. Okay, Um, so here's this is just the little um, the little paragraph we get before the start of chapter one. Right Uh, now. Notice my question here is, how does this set us up for what kind of expectations does this raise? What issues are introduced by this? Uh, You know. How are, What are we being pointed at, if you see what I mean, um, by this initial paragraph? How these papers have been placed in sequence will be made manifest in the reading of them. All needless matters have been eliminated, so that a history, almost at variance with the possibilities of later-day belief, may stand forth as simple fact. There is throughout no statement of past things wherein memory may err, for all the records chosen are exactly contemporary, given from the standpoints and within the range of knowledge of those who made them. What do we get here? This is our context, essentially, right? This is our prompt that we are armed with before we begin reading chapter one. What does it prepare us for? What are the sort of questions or things that it's anticipating? Um, What are the promptings that it gives to us? What do you notice here? And Joyce, I see your comment there. That's exactly what I'm going to talk about next, but I wanted to talk about this first. good good yeah nancy you're right it notes that the story that it's going to be told is 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 supernatural that we'd have a hard time believing that it really happened but it's it is also assuring us that it's true right assuring us that it's true and giving as evidence of that fact that all of these things are you know so there's 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 no possibility of simple exaggeration or so, you know uh, is embellishment or embroidery after the fact right um, notice what it uh, what it asserts right a this text is based upon first-person documents right so this is this is this is a collection of authentic accounts from eyewitnesses right and uh, if you're wondering as this seems to be one of the things that this paragraph is anticipating right that you might be wondering well how did we how do we find like out what Jonathan Harker wrote in his diary, right? Um, how do we get access to Jonathan Harker's diary? That seems like an affectation, right? It's you know, doubtless just a fiction writer using that as a mechanism, right? Um, and we're not told exactly how it is that we get our hands ultimately on Jonathan Harker's journal, but we're told in that first sentence that how these papers have been placed in sequence will be made manifest in the reading of them, right? So it will, although from the beginning it might not be obvious it'll become obvious later on how it is that we come to be reading jonathan harker's journal okay um, so just in case that it sounds outlandish don't 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 think so it'll make sense as you go along right so okay so so take his word for it these are first hand accounts this is simple uh, this is simple fact Right, simple facts be, being related. No exaggeration. No. This is not even like uh, recalling this decades later. Right. Let me tell you the story of how it really was. Because whenever somebody old tells the story of how it really was back in the day, it almost never is really simple fact. Right. There's embellishment. There's nostalgia. There's uh, and you know. But but no 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 no. All the records chosen are exactly contemporary. Notice the word chosen. Right, it suggests that things are rejected. Right, that there are some things that might have been included in the account, but which have been excluded because they are insufficiently contemporary, or, or like basically they, they they didn't reach the high standards that these texts which have been included have. Right, there's almost that implication there. Right, so only the most authentic, the most contemporary, you know, the the most uh, you know sort of close to the action uh, uh, at uh, knowledgeable accounts uh, are. Are included, Um, okay, okay, yeah. So, so exactly, we are set up, uh, as Joyce says, as Kimber says, we are set up to recognize the fact that this is this is true, right? That we're supposed to accept this as a as a true story. Um, We're supposed to accept this as, as as reality. And Gerald, you make a really good point. Gerald Michael points out that it acknowledges that contemporary perceptions can be wrong. Right, um, a history almost at variance with the possibilities of later day belief. Right, um, it recognizes the story that we're going to tell you. It's it's almost at variance with the possibility. It's 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 it's, it's almost impossible that people who hold modern beliefs, right, later day beliefs, um, almost impossible that people from that point of view are going to be able to accept the fact that this stuff could happen. Right, but in order that a history in that category, may stand forth in simple fact. All needless matters have been eliminated. No statement of past things wherein memory may err have been included. Exactly. Um, So, uh, yeah, Brent, exactly. There are going to be doubts brought up in the reader's mind, but we are to push through those. This is an important theme in the entire book that is introduced very forcibly here, right? Um, That we need to have an open mind despite the fact that we're going to hear about things which are not really going to fit um, which are not really going to fit with uh, the way that we normally look at the world Um, uh, yeah, uh, Mark good point, Um, Mark Ingram points out also we're not engaged in some kind of ungentlemanly reading of another gentleman's personal correspondence, yeah uh, there is something kind of prurient in that, right? I mean it would be a little bit indecorous for us to be reading somebody else's private journal and, and, uh, you know, private letters between individuals and, you know, not addressed to us. Um, so yeah, there is a kind of, um, a sort of permission granted Mark, right. You know, in this, in this little introduction, right. To show you like, it's, there's a reason that you're getting all this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, good. Um, All right. Excellent. Good. Good. Yeah. Um, so keep this in mind as so this is going to, this, this connects with some of the, the central, most, most frequently repeated, uh, concepts uh, of the book. This issue, this issue of the possibilities of later day belief, um, is going to come up again and again and again. It's going to be a really central idea, um, uh, in the book, um, uh, Brandon wonders how long after the events these papers have been gathered, um, we will see it, it will be made manifest in the reading of them. Um, uh, that is to say, uh, to, to say a little bit more than that first paragraph actually makes explicit. the story of how these papers come to be assembled, these different diaries and accounts come to be assembled is a part of the ver- of the story itself. Um, so we will, we will in fact see how all of that, how all of that works. Um, anyway, so we will, but, but, but we are prepared. We've been told what to expect, right? So are we to believe this is really true? No, this is fiction, but, but the framework of that fiction, right? Is that we are to, is that we are to accept it as fact. This is, uh, um, it's an important directive that we are being given here at the beginning, right, that we are to engage with it in that particular way. The, this is not like a kind of acknowledgement, right, of, um, you know, sometimes a framework or, a, you know, sort of a quotation or something at the beginning can give us that kind of cue, right, this sort of recognition, um Okay, we both know where we are now, right you as reader and I as author, we have a you know a sort of understanding we're gonna accept this we're gonna we're you know we're stepping together into what Tolkien called a secondary world right um where uh, uh you know that we can sort of invest in together, but we both acknowledge at the beginning that we're stepping out of the real world and into something else, right this book does something different it's not unique in that um uh that was of course ultimately where the novel came from. I mean if you think about. Uh, You know, the two first English novels um, were Robinson Crusoe and Samuel Richardson's Pamela. Both of those do exactly the same thing. That is, both of them claim to be merely the publication of... First-hand accounts that were written and and you know ultimately retained. One being the private journals, and well, no, both being private journals. One being the private journals of Robinson Crusoe uh, when he was uh, stranded on his island, and then afterwards when he returned, and then uh, uh, and Pamela, of course, being the private diary of uh, uh, the rather voluble and exciting life of uh, um, of uh, Pamela uh, who has an enormous quantity of time for writing, apparently, and writes very fast. Um, Okay, so anyhow, okay. Um, And, uh, yeah, Ellen, you're right. Gulliver's Travels does do that as well. Though I would say, Ellen, that Swift, I think, is a little bit more... The nod that Swift makes to that, right? I mean, there is that frame, right? There's the traveler's frame where, you know, he sort of explains this is an account of a... um, there's sort of less expectation of belief, right? It's like Swift isn't really trying to fool anybody exactly. That that is to, or to say it a different way, the uh, the atmosphere of reality, right, um, is less uh, is a less important element. Um, you know, the applicability of the places that Gulliver goes to to our own world is, of course, important, right? But it's not an essential element of that story that we think of it as being our primary world, right? With these other stories, and focusing on Dracula here, this is important, right? He is establishing from the beginning: don't imagine this is taking place in you know long ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? This is happening here and now. This is this is contemporary. Um, we have the records to prove it. Um, so we are being told. Think of this in terms of our own primary world, and that that's a really important framework for the story that we're going to be that we're going to be getting. So, okay, now let me digress <laughs> because I've accomplished one slide, uh, and uh, uh, and you would uh, the 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 betting pool in in the uh, chat room of what percentage of my slides would get through um, would be. Um, wildly amused if you discovered how many slides I have tonight. Um, It's uh, ridiculous, even for me. Uh, But, but, uh, I'm going to nevertheless boldly um, pause here for a second because there's something that's super important to acknowledge, and Joyce here I'm coming back with uh, to uh, the point that you uh, had raised in the questions box a while back. Our later day situation has some different issues that Stoker's later day uh, uh, situation did not have. Right? Um, That is to say, he, uh, he is anticipating the fact that readers are going to be resistant to his story, at least attaching it in some way to the world they live in. And so, we get this prompt, right? I know this is going to be challenging, but you know, bear with us, right? Um... We of course have an additional. Ch- we have that challenge as well, but we have an additional challenge in it as well, which is essentially the problem caused by the spectacular, the incredible success of Dracula itself. Um, Dracula is one of the most, one of the most like republished. It's one of the like all time bestsellers. I mean, I, it's one of the maybe three or four best. Like most read books in the English language, it's remarkable, 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 way high up. Uh, and of course, the uh, even beyond, of course, the actual sort of sales and reading of the book um, is the effect, you know, the impact on our society, which has been... You know, and on our you know the imagination of our society, which has been far far beyond that, and indeed in many ways, as we'll see, uh, having quite forgotten what Bram Stoker's story actually was um and uh yeah, I mean Brandon, as you point out, everybody knows about Dracula, even if you've never read the book, everybody knows about Dracula, everybody knows about vampires um so there are two issues here first, we are very much biased by our expectations. We all have a mental image not only of vampires in general, but of Dracula in particular. Right? And we bring that baggage to this book in, of course, ways that obviously folks in 1897 did not do. Right? So that's something that we need to acknowledge and we need to to really recognize. At the same time, of course, even again, even apart from the specific Dracula-related baggage that we bring to this story, um, we... Know all about. I mean, vampires is are enormously mainstream, right? In our culture, um, totally common idea. Therefore, it makes it really, really hard for us to enter into the spirit, uh, you know, into into Jonathan Harker's situation as he arrives at Castle Dracula, right? Um, there's a there's a level of dramatic irony. In so many of the things that Dracula says, that Jonathan says, which just was not there originally, because the readers had very little idea. Now... Of course, I'm not saying that Bram Stoker invented vampires. Obviously, he didn't. I'm not saying that there have been no other vampire books. There have. Um, the the you know the Romantics loved vampires. Uh, Byron was trying to write a, a vampire book, which didn't get off the ground. If you know the story of that famous incident where uh, 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 Mary Shelley and, and Percy Shelley and Byron all d- and uh, and their friend um, the one who is compared to the three of them, a bit of a chump, um, John Polidori, I mean, um, when the four of them were all hanging out there, and they decided that they would all write, you know, they would all write a, a, a horror story Mary Shelley wrote, um, wrote Frankenstein, which came out of that. Byron was trying to write a, a vampire poem, and which, or no, he started writing a ghost story, and it was awful. Um, their friend John Polidori wrote a novel called uh, The Vampire. And, uh, Byron loved vampires, and, uh, anyway, um, so uh, vampires vampires are a thing, they've been a thing, it's not totally new, and yet it was very, very far from mainstream. Okay, There are going to be a lot of times in this book where if we don't kind of suspend, not suspend our disbelief, but suspend our 21st century knowledge, Right? Um, if we can't try to put ourselves imaginatively into the position of the characters in this story who really have no idea what... The undead are what a vampire is. Um, if we can't do that, there are going to be parts of this story which are going to seem totally pointless to us. Um, we see this, of course, very strongly at the beginning when, you know, Jonathan is first showing up at the castle and he's like, well, this is kind of strange, but that's okay. This, this quaint count, and, I, you know, he's got these teeth that stick down below his lips, but whatever, you know, like. You know, different strokes for different folks, I guess, right? And it was like the the, the towering what seems to a twenty first century person as like the, the 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 ludicrous naivete of Jonathan in those early chapters um, can make it really hard for us to really enter into that same experience that people would have been that people would have had. Um, it's going to get even worse down the road. I mean, eventually, <clears throat> not too far from now, in the next week or two, we're going to be getting, you know doctors struggling with the diagnosis for like this i can't understand why she's suddenly so pale and low on blood and there are these puncture wounds in her neck and it's like you know absolutely anybody i mean it's it's like any teenager from sunnydale california could tell you in a heartbeat what was wrong with that person right and here are these specialists who are uh uh, who are uh completely um uh, completely stumped uh, that was a buffy reference by the way. Uh, see Curtis, I'm just trying to show off now right I've been doing my homework uh, anyway um, uh, Curtis Wayant uh, has he's our local uh, uh, Joss Whedon expert uh, he's been uh, uh, I've been uh, watching uh, Buffy since I finished Dr. who anyway, um, point is. We have to suspend our knowledge of this. Although it was not a new phenomenon, although it had been around, it was not at all in the popular mind. This was just not so. I mean, most people would not did not have any idea. I mean, you can see it's 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 plain as the story goes on how alien this concept is to everybody, um, uh, to everybody involved in the story. So we have to. Um, so we have to. Get ourselves into that mindset, and that just takes an imaginative leap on our part. We have to try to forget everything that we know um and uh, originally uh, anyway that the um yes, Bram Stoker is the one who put Dracula himself um uh, on the map but um uh but um but anyway, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, it's um, yeah, Carito, you're right, the word vampire doesn't even come in very much, um, and, and a lot of the time, when the word vampire is used, you have to be careful about this, what does the word vampire mean? Tolkien fans will have heard me talk about this before when somebody, when a British person of the early 20th century says, a vampire, what do they mean? They're talking about the bat. Yes, they are talking about the bat. They don't say vampire bat. There's no reason to specify vampire bat. They just say it's a vampire, right? Um, and you will see that expression used in exactly that way later on in this book. Um, so the for them, the metaphor worked the other way around. You see what I mean? That is, it's not... This species of bat, bat we are naming vampire bats because they they bite people and suck their blood like vampires do. For the characters in the story, it works absolutely the other way around, right? There's this like living dead creature which sucks the blood out of kind of like vampires do, like bats do, right? Um, it's not the other way around, right? So okay, so we have to focus on this. So in the interests of a trying to. Uh, re-enter the pre-vampire pre-Dracula mindset and also trying to be vigilant against um, bringing in our own presuppositions about Dracula but you know what he does what he can do, what his strengths and weaknesses are because you'll notice if you've paid attention you'll notice already that there are some of the traditional weaknesses associated with Dracula which he simply does not have. As for instance, very notably, uh, he can travel around in the sunlight perfectly well. Absolutely, does not in any way catch fire uh, when he goes out into the sunlight. Um, so, um, anyway, anyway, there's uh, uh, there's um, many differences. So here's what we need to do. Let's um, let's meet this Count Dracula fellow. And see what we find, shall we? Let's make some observations here. Let's start off with his physical description, so that we can attempt to start getting Bella Lugosi out of our minds. We'll come to Bella Lugosi. Um, by the way, though, this also means we're not talking about movies. We're not talking. We're not talking about anything else. We're just focusing from now on, from this moment, we're focusing only on this book. Forget about everything else. Okay. His face was a strong, a very strong, aquiline, with high bridge of the thin nose and peculiarly arched nostrils, with lofty, domed forehead and hair growing scantily round the temples, but profusely elsewhere. His eyebrows were very massive, almost meeting over the nose, and with bushy hair that seemed to curl in its own profusion. The mouth, so far as I could see it under the heavy moustache, was fixed and rather cruel-looking, with peculiarly sharp white teeth. These protruded over the lips, whose remarkable ruddiness showed astonishing vitality in a man of his years. For the rest, his ears were pale and the tops extremely pointed. His chin was broad and strong, and the cheeks firm though thin. The general effect was one of extraordinary pallor. Hitherto I had noticed the backs of his hands as they lay on his knees in the firelight, and they had seemed rather white and fine, but seeing them now close to me, I could not but notice that they were rather coarse, broad, with squat fingers. Strange to say, there were hairs in the center of the palm. The nails were long and fine, and cut to a sharp point. As the Count leaned over me and his hands touched me, I could not repress a shudder. Okay. So what do you notice? Yes, he has a mustache! Several people commenting on the mustache. Uh, the, The image of the gaunt, narrow, Like widow's peaked, very smooth, non-hairy Dracula. You gotta get that out of your heads. It's not what he looks like, right? He's he's got like a massive unibrow, right? He's very hairy. Uh, uh, He's he's got long mustaches, almost like big bushy. I I don't know if his eyebrows stick out past the brim of his hat. I mean, not everybody can be quite so superciliously blessed as that, but. uh, but anyway, he's got really bushy eyebrows, right? His hair is is uh, seems to curl in its own profusion, right? I mean, he's um he's a real he's a really hairy guy. Plus, he's got that extra hair on the palm of his hand. That's one element of this description, which seems to be drawn from uh, uh from uh, sort of folk tradition. Uh, several of you are saying he sounds like a werewolf. Um, yes, the the werewolf and vampire myths seem to be linked. Remember, uh, in fact, uh, we'll get to this passage a little bit later on. Remember, there's a, a single word that um, Jonathan looks up in his little polyglot dictionary, which could mean either werewolf or vampire, right? He doesn't mean, he doesn't really know what it means, you know, sort of in what in what context. Um, but anyway. So yeah, the uh, I I it seems to me very likely that the distinction between werewolf and vampire is uh less important here than we might make it again we you know we we've been long used we have we have now very long and robust traditions of you know werewolf stories and movies and vampire stories and movies um and uh that but um Neither one of those things was true. Again, vampires, werewolves, both of them long traditions, but um, but both similarly outside of the uh, mainstream here at this point. Um, Okay, what else? So Harry, as for the initial description there, um, this contains a lot, and and I'm not very good at this. Um, This contain uh, you will see that Bram Stoker loves. Physiognomy, right? The uh, uh, the study of the physiognomy—that is how you can how you can tell about people's minds and personalities by the features of their face, right? Um, um, this uh, j- to little spoiler here. Uh, later on, when someone will say to uh, Van Helsing, "You don't know what it is to doubt yourself. You can't with eyebrows like yours." Right? People say things like that <laughs> in in this book quite a bit. Uh, it's a it's a it's a physni- it's a f- a physiognomy thing. The belief that certain features correlated with certain mental capacities. Or certain uh, um, or certain personality characteristics. So his uh, his very strong aquiline face um, with a high bridge of the thin nose and peculiarly arched nostrils. That I believe, if I'm getting this correctly, um, that suggests cruelty. It's associated with cruelty. Um, the why, why does he have a lofty domed forehead? Any, any any guesses about the lofty domed forehead? What do you think that means? Yeah, exactly, Carita. He's smart. Um, uh, or is that, as they'd say locally around here, he's wicked smart. Um, yeah, yeah. Dr- Vampire, uh, 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 Count Vampire, Count Dracula, is extremely intelligent, and that is obvious from his face. Um, I think that's even associated with the um, uh, with the the, um, the thin hair at the temples, but profuse everywhere else. I think that's also a brainy thing. I'm not 100 percent sure though. I, again, my physiognomy is is uh, is is kind of rusty. Um, what else? What else do we notice? Anything else strike you? His ears were extremely pointed. Yes, yes, Arthur. Yeah, he's uh, Arthur. <laughs> Arthur thinks he's ale. <laughs> what? Arthur wasn't there? Somebody else you were diagnosing as being ale before? Um, yeah, he does have pointy ears. Yeah. Um, yeah, Joyce, the coarse broad hands, definitely not those of an English gentleman. That's exactly what Jonathan is noticing. Um, that's what Jonathan is uh, pointing to when he says, uh, that he had, they had seemed rather white and fine, as an English gentleman's hands would be. Um, but he sees an, instead they're they're actually rather coarse, um, and his fingers are squat and broad, which is not how an English, gen- a, a, a good English gentleman's hands, uh, would be. Um, Good. We have the combination of uh, Tom, as you emphasize, both his age and his strength. He is prodigiously strong, um, and this is something that uh, Jonathan notices right away. Um, good. Kimber makes a great observation, and uh, James Leibach was just pointing to the same thing: uh, the the opposites, the sort of extremes, right? He uh, he his his his. Oh, the general effect was one of extraordinary pallor, right? He's very, very, very pale, but his lips are, uh, are, sh- they, they are remarkably ruddy, right? Showing an astonishing vitality in a man of his years, um, in a man of his years, right? He, that is, all of this is, he's, his hair is white, right? I mean, his, his white, his mustaches are white. Uh, he's an elderly gentleman that, uh, Jonathan Harker meets, um, As for the fangs, you know the teeth which uh, protrude over the lips. Well, again, you know, some people have weird teeth. Uh, you know, we're pre-orthodontia here, so you know, stuff happens. Um, but, um, um, yeah. Anyway, okay. So let's see what what else. Uh, what else do we get to know? Let's let's continue filling out uh, uh, Count Dracula's. Uh, uh, oh, good, Nancy. Yes, the fingernails stand out to me. Notice, Nancy this shows us something that's one of the things that most of all of these things most directly tell something about his personality right because it's due to his own personal grooming he has f- you know filed his nails to a point right uh he has chosen to give it, to give himself claws for reasons best known to himself right so yeah that's uh that's interesting um uh okay um yes Brent we he does appear uh he does appear in 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 different ways, right? He does appear... Um, we get the, the the brown beard of the carriage driver. Brent, is that a question of him cha- actually physically changing his own appearance, or is that a question of him wearing a fake beard? Um, I don't know. I'm not sure what we're supposed to be understanding there. Um, but... Um, but yeah, Brandon yeah, Brandon says Harker, a proper English gentleman, is encountering a noble who looks nothing like he probably expected. Right. But Brandon, you'll notice he accepts that because why should he know what to expect in a Transylvanian nobleman, right? Jonathan is in his not uh judging Dracula on his appearance. Jonathan is being urbane, right? well, I know, I can't expect everybody to have uh, all of the same customs as we have back home in England, and, you know, things are different in a foreign land, and, um, uh, you know, so that's all... Um, uh, again, as I said, it, it makes uh, it makes good sense that he would think that way. Um, yeah, exactly, is saying. He's, he's thinking, well, they probably all look like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, just, he doesn't know any other Transylvanian nobles. Okay, what else do we learn about Dracula. At the first howl the horses began to strain and rear, but the driver spoke to them soothingly, and they quieted down, but shivered and sweated as though after a runaway from sudden fright. Then, far off in the distance, from the mountains on each side of us, began a louder and sharper howling, that of wolves, which affected both the horses and myself in the same way, for I was minded to jump from the calash and run, whilst they reared again and plunged madly, so that the driver had to use all his great strength to keep them from bolting. In a few minutes, however, my own ears got accustomed to the sound, and the horses so far became quiet that the driver was able to descend and to stand before them. He petted and soothed them, and whispered something in their ears, as I have heard of horse tamers doing, with extraordinary effect, for under his caresses they became quite manageable again, though they still trembled. The driver again took his seat, and, shaking his reins, started off at a great pace." What do we see? Yeah, he... His connection with animals. People always remember the wolf thing. People don't usually remember the horse thing. This is a this is a moment in the book which often gets overlooked by people, right? He's not just... A, he, he's about more than just rats, bats, and wolves, right? Um, he does seem to have a connection with all kinds of animals. Um, notice there's a second thing that we get here, right? What else do we get here apart from apart from the horses and the wolf? Notice who else is involved here? Yeah, yeah Lily is not, not quite as uh, good with humans. Um, not quite. Not quite. Um, what other animals are involved? There's another animal involved here. We have got the horses. The wolves. No, I'm not thinking of Jonathan. I'm thinking beasts. Dogs, Ellen. Yes, dogs. Um, when The first howling at the beginning is dogs howling. Um, and, he, and he hears them howling all over the place. And then wolves begin to join in. Now, Whenever I'm reading this, at first, when he starts talking about the dogs beginning to howl, my first response is to be like, "Oh, Jonathan, I bet those aren't really dogs. I bet those are really wolves." But no, they are really dogs because then he notices when the wolves start howling. Right? He knows the difference between a wolf howl and a dog howl, and he recognizes when the dogs start howling. Excuse me, when the wolves join in and start howling. Right? So the dogs were howling previously. Now, why were the dogs howling? Were the dogs howling in response to him? They're responding. Remember what's going on here when this is happening? Uh, what time is it? What's going on? You remember this? It's midnight. Yes, Ellen. It's midnight on the eve of St. George's Day. Yes. And at the stroke of midnight on the eve of St. George's, all uh, evil creatures hold unchecked sway. Um, and the dogs are howling. Now, are the dogs howling? So, they seem to be aware of this. So, notice, therefore, what we have, um, uh, what we have indicated here. Indicated to us, that is. Um, there's some kind of sensitivity. Some kind of sensitivity that people don't have. Or, wait, excuse me. Englishmen don't have, at least. The, uh... The local peasants seem to be okay with it. But Jonathan doesn't have it. Um, that is the awareness of the spooky stuff that's going on around them, right? When the, all the evil things in the world hold unchecked sway, the dogs seem to know about it, right? And they're howling. Now, it's unclear to me. Are they howling? Because the wolves are howling, too. And the wolves seem to be responding to Dracula. They seem to be actually working with him here. And we'll, we'll look at that more in a second. Um are the dogs yeah, are they just Joyce as you're suggesting, are they are they fearful and uneasy uh in responding to it? Um or are they um you know, are they part of the you know, are they also responding to, to uh to, to, to Dracula's call? I don't know. We'll see, you know, we, we might be able to gather some more information on this in the past. But in any case, we see Dracula being able to, to be connected to, to bring all of these other beasts, that at least all the ones we see him interacting with, uh, bring them into compliance with his will. Uh, Lee Smith was talking about him sort of uh, scaring or intimidating the horses into being quiet. And it's possible... Um, we don't know exactly what he whispers in their ears, right? Whether it's something soothing. Uh, uh, you know, He seems to be petting and soothing them in the sense that he's trying to calm them down. Uh, does he actually whisper some dire threat in, uh, into their ears? We don't really know, of course. Jonathan doesn't actually hear what he says. Um, but he is, in any case, able to bring the horses into compliance with his will. So, okay. Uh, so that's one of the things... This is one of the very first... Things that we're told about uh, that we're shown about Dracula, even though it's not explicitly yet told to us that um, this is Dracula himself. Though the exchange that he has with the other coach driver uh, when uh, uh, when Dracula changing coaches or when Jonathan, excuse me, is changing coaches, uh, already kind of suggests that it's really uh, that it's really him. Um, okay, what else? Here's the wolves. <clears throat> All at once, the wolves began to howl as though the moonlight had had some peculiar effect on them. The wolves jumped about and reared and looked helplessly round, with eyes that rolled in a way painful to see. But the living ring of terror encompassed them on every side, and they had perforce to remain within it. I called to the coachman to come, for it seemed to me that our only chance was to try to break out through the ring and to aid his approach. I shouted and beat the side of the caleche, hoping by the noise to scare the wolves from that side, so as to give him a chance of reaching the trap. Uh, That is, the coach. The trap. Not a trap for something. Anyway, How he came there I know not, but I heard his voice raised in a tone of imperious command and, looking towards the sound, saw him stand in the roadway. As he swept his long arms, as though brushing aside some impalpable obstacle, the wolves fell back and back further still. Just then a heavy cloud passed across the face of the moon so that we were again in darkness. When I could see again... The driver was climbing into the kalesh, and the wolves had disappeared. This was all so strange and uncanny that a dreadful fear came upon me, and I was afraid to speak or move. Okay, good. Carita, excellent observation. We do Before we get to what we learn about Dracula, we do learn that Jonathan is spunky. I agree with you. Um, Jonathan, the, uh, there, there's a pack of wolves closing in on them, right, in the darkness. This is... Um, this is a big deal, right? Um, it kind of looks like they're all going to die. Um, but yet Jonathan's response to that is to see, you know, our only approach is to try to break out, right? And he's trying to, he's trying to do his part to enable the coachman to get back through. Notice he doesn't like, screw it, forget the coachman, right? <laughs> I'm going to just whip up the horses and make a break for it. You know, he can shift for himself, right? It's, uh, so, yeah, we, we do learn some really interesting things about Jonathan here very, uh, 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 very early on. Um now more 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 what do we see here what do we learn what what do we learn about dracula in this passage we see that he has so we've already seen that he seems to be able to impose his will upon animals we see that he seems to have an even stronger affinity with the wolves right he doesn't just wave his arms at the horses he's got to go and calm them and stuff like a you know like a normal person does though he does it extremely effectively right um, they seem to respond to him very much but, um, but with the wolves he's just a wave of his arms and they they obey him right um, yeah he just he just he commands them I think that that is a um, uh, I mean that's that's the word there a tone, his voice raised in a tone of imperious command yeah yeah um, This is a dangerous game to play, but it's so much fun I can't resist. And there are a number of times in this book where, well, okay, no, actually, it's, there are a number of times in this book where we are actively instructed to, where in fact we will be following along, where the central thrust of the plot is playing precisely this game. So, let's get in the habit of it from the beginning. What really happened here? Can you tell me what really happened here? We get this from Jonathan's perspective, right? And he's kind of a noob, right? Uh, he's, he's, uh, he's, He's pretty clueless about all of this, right? What really happened? Can you tell me what really happened? Penny asks the excellent question. Penny Williams says, if he commands the wolves, why are they attacking in the first place? Indeed, a question to be asked, isn't it? Is he being threatened by the wolves and is holding them off because he is in command? Yeah, I think he's in cahoots with the wolves. All the evidence that we get, I mean, not up to this point, right? We we don't have enough evidence at this moment, but even by the end of chapter three, which is where we're officially stopping today, so I'm not going to talk about anything post-chapter three. um, But, at least I'm going to try to resist doing so. Uh, But even by the end of chapter three, we have plenty of evidence to uh, believe that he is under... He has the wolves under control. I don't think he's having a meeting with the wolves exactly <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think I don't think I don't think his fake beard is is full in the wolves. yeah, no, I doubt it I doubt it yeah um yeah oh Sarah are you are you reading this book for the first time? Awesome, awesome. Is he testing Jonathan? Maybe, maybe. Um, think about it this way. Um, yeah, Brandon. The wolves are. I, I think we have every reason to believe the wolves are real. They appear to be real wolves. Um, as there are certainly real wolves involved at various points, uh, in the future. So yeah, no, I think they're they're definitely real real wolves. They disappear Just I mean, like. Wolves in a forest at night can disappear pretty fast. I, 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 don't think it's an, I don't think there's anything supernatural about the disappearance of the wolves. Um, oh, cool. Yana's reading it for the first time, uh, too. Um, here's my theory. Note how the wolves are standing. The wolves are standing in a ring around the coach. That's not normal. I mean wolves hunt in a pack and everything, but they're not just gonna form a ring like a set of sentries around a co I mean if they were gonna move in on the horses, which they might do, I mean there's a coach with two perfectly edible horses standing there at you know, alone at night, you know, could the wolves uh uh you know come in and, and try to take out the horses? Yeah, sure, absolutely, that's perfectly uh, absolutely plausible. What's not plausible is all of the wolves just kind of standing back there and just standing like as if they've been posted as guards or something. Um, that seems a little bit unlikely. Right? Um, you notice that it pre- Jonathan was thinking about going... Exactly, James. James says uh, uh, they're trying to keep Jonathan from escaping while Dracula's gone. Yeah. Absolutely. Jonathan thinks about getting out of the coach um, because he's gone. Dracula's gone for quite a long time, going to the blue where the magic blue flames are appearing because it's the eve of St. George's. And on the eve of St. George's, the blue flames appear above places where treasure has been buried. Dracula explains this later on. right? So the driver is going to where the blue flames are and he's gone for quite a while. right? So this is not like just like Two minutes, and then he comes back. Um, he's gone for a long time, and Jonathan almost gets out of the coach. Uh, it rather seems that the wolves are there in order to um, uh, in order to make sure that um, Jonathan stays put. Even that the horses don't run off, right? Because the horses are going to stay. As long as they're completely surrounded by wolves, they're going to freeze, right? Which apparently they do. Um, So it's also like putting the parking brake on the coach, right? Totally convenient. Um, Gerald says, can we trust Dracula as to the provenance of the blue flames? Uh, I don't know. Um, I got to tell you, the blue flame thing... Don't worry too much about the blue flame thing. Um, It's not going to come back again in the story. Um, I can give you my impression... Uh, well, take this with a grain of salt because this is just my own uh, this is just my own reading there are a number of things that come up in these early chapters which aren't really going to come up again in the story and the impression that I give that it's, it's, I, I'm the the um, qualification I wanted to make at the beginning is like, beware, what I am about to say is classic crit fic, pure, unadulterated crit fic, okay but I'm going to say it anyway. I get the impression that Bram Stoker in the beginning chapters was really indulging his own pleasure in like recounting local folk tales and, and like there were lots of cool superstitions and beliefs, um, in that region, which he thought were really interesting. And so he seems to bring them in and, uh, uh, the first this is the, the blue flames are for me the number one on this list of some things that get kind of shoehorned into this first into these first few chapters um, and they never come up again. There's, they're just never really important in the story. Um, again, that stuff falls away after the first couple chapters. Um, now it's true that there's an element uh, you know can we believe that the count is true when he says about the blue flames? Um, well yeah i mean there is in fact evidence that we see i don't i think we don't see it till chapter 4 but that actually this is how the count funds his operation um uh is by finding the buried treasure that uh has been left in the soil um so so yeah he 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 uh Actually, does seem to have a pragmatic use uh, uh, for this. Yeah, James. No, he really does need money for his trip. I think you were joking when you said that, but that in fact, yes, like he's he's purchasing Carfax Abbey uh, in uh, uh, with coins that he dug out of the earth that had blue flame blue flames over them. Apparently, um, so it's not that it's um it's not that it's totally irrelevant or anything. And and I mean, it's it's certainly. It contributes very greatly to the eerie atmosphere at the beginning in Jonathan's sense of like I am passing into this weird other world where like people don't act the way that I expect them to act and stuff does not is not going according to, to plan and I'm I, I find it very a, a key word in this pass in this passage is uncanny, right? It was all so strange and uncanny. Um very uncanny for him. Um so Anyway, I I, but like I said, it's not going to be like the blue flames are not going to be crucial uh, as we as we go through. Um, Anyway, okay, Um, yeah, Penny, I think that's a good way to put it. Penny says, uh, "Is Stoker trying to build up a general picture of a sort of a a, a medieval or pre-modern world, very different to the modern Western European world Jonathan comes from?" Yeah, yeah, very different, right? Um, Strange, right? Not only strange. Also uncanny, right? He expected strange, was not prepared for this level of uncanniness, right? Um, that's uh, that's kind of the uh, that's kind of the that's kind of the big deal. Anyway, um, let's keep uh, let's keep meeting. Let's let's uh, finish uh, formulating Dracula's uh, personal ad here. The old man motioned me in with his right hand with a courtly gesture. "'Motioning, uh, sorry, yeah, uh, saying in excellent English, but with a strange intonation, "'Welcome to my house. Enter freely, and of your own will.' "'He made no motion of stepping to meet me, but stood like a statue, "'as though his gesture of welcome had fixed him into stone.' The instant, however, that I had stepped over the threshold, he moved impulsively forward, and holding out his hand, grasped mine with a strength which made me wince, an effect which was not lessened by the fact that it seemed cold as ice, more like the hand of a dead than a living man. Okay. Yes, Tom, and of course, needless to say, I'm impersonating the Count from Sesame Street, um, who will always, for me, be the the real voice of the Count. Um, Anyway, um... uh, (laughs) <laughs> what do we see here? Now, you guys are are, are going to be all. I know you're 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 all over this one, right? What have we learned about Dracula here? Yeah, Curtis points out that the invitation trope is inverted here. We're used to association associating invitations with with vampires, right? That's a thing that we but here we see that it's important but but it's 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 the other way around right the emphasis that dracula places is on the significance of jonathan entering crossing the threshold of his own free will jonathan comes into dracula's house submits himself to dracula's power and for some reason though we don't know what that reason is that seems to be important right um quite a big deal uh, is um is made of that, Nancy. I think what intonation means is in part accent, but and all, but also also rhythm, um, the way he weighs stress on syllables. Probably, probably so. Um, probably accent generally. Um, yeah, yeah. And Brandon, you're right. This is our first indication that there's something odd about the count, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kimber, I we don't really know why like, why does dracula need permission to capture somebody we don't know but but this but here's what we do now for whatever reason right we don't know why we don't know exactly what was accomplished but we know it's important right dracula seems to insist jonathan has to come across his threshold of his own will and having done so again we don't know what exactly he has achieved by having Jonathan do that, but it's clear that that is important. Therefore, we should file that away, right? We now have a thing that we should be looking for in thinking about vampires and how vampires work. We should be thinking about will and choice, right? The relationship with their victims and the engagement of the will of the victim. Um, that seems to be a thing. So let's let's keep an eye on that. Um, yeah, Ellen. That line, right? More like the hand of a dead than a living man. It's it's lines like that that make the modern reader just face palm. Like seriously, and you're going to the guy's house, right? Like Count Dracula in Transylvania, and you shake his hand, and his hand is cold like a corpse, and you're not suspicious, right? Well, no, I mean, lots of people have cold hands, right? Um, and that, so, to us, from in the from the post Dracula perspective. That line seems like the most obvious tell in the world, right? And I'm like, like you know, it, it's tempting to say as a modern reader, like, gosh, like could Bram Stoker tip his hand a little bit, f- clo- you know, further? Right? I can't quite see every single card in the hand, right? I mean, it sounds like such an obvious giveaway, but it's not an obvious giveaway, right? It's just, a, it's just a thing that you say, right? I, you know, wow, his hand was so cold. It's, it's like the hand. It was, it was, it was like the, head of a, the, the hand of a dead man. But remember, we don't have a concept of dead people walking around. We're not expecting that, right? We immediately think that, well, maybe he is a dead man, right? That comes immediately to our minds. It would not have come immediately to the minds of people in 1897. So we have to... We have to... uh, uh, We have to... To back off from that, um, and Yana, wonderful, yeah. Yana says, Yana uh, uh, says, can I say that as a non-native English speaker, the dialogue of the count is done with just the right amount of clumsiness? Um, yes, I do like uh, his clumsiness, Yana. Uh, I will be. I, I I can't wait to see what you think of Van Helsing's dialogue because Van Helsing is also a clumsy English speaker because he's Dutch. Uh, so I will be very very interested. For doesn't know, Jana uh, is from the Netherlands. So uh, so Jana, I am. Um, <laughs> I'll be very interested to see what you think of his uh, of his uh, his his Dutch accent. Um. Okay. Let's see. Uh, Let's see, looking at... So again, I apologize for not being able to to uh, um, uh, address everybody's uh, comments. Um, yeah, so Carrie, you're right. Carrie, um, Carrie Gross points out that Stoker is foreshadowing here, but he's also still keeping his main character clueless. Yes, though again, I would emphasize still, like, 98% of the readers are still clueless, too, right? I mean, it's, a, it's sort of a creepy detail, like, ooh, it's almost like touching a corpse, like, ooh, that's kind of uncanny, that's kind of creepy, right? It gives you a creepy vibe, but it's... It doesn't, like, well, that proves that he's a, you know, that he is the living dead, right? Um, that's, um, uh, that's not... Uh, um, it just wouldn't have been... It wouldn't have been the in the thought process in the same way. Um, yeah, good. Sarah Lagarde is pointing out how the uh, that whole entering of your own free will um, seems. She's seeing the connection to the, the sort of traditional uh, fairy tale uh, tradition that you know that, that idea of entering of your own free will of crossing thresholds um, is a is a big deal that has a long history not just in vampire stories but uh, uh, but in other stories it's a it seems to be a, sort of a magic thing. Um, yeah, I agree. Um, and good Joyce is right to point out that Stoker's readers would have been much more familiar with death and dead bodies than we are. Um, yes, you're certainly right, Joyce. They would, they would have been much likelier to have touched the hand of a corpse than we are likely to have touched the hand of a corpse. Um, we are way squeamish about dead bodies, uh, and I bet very few people attending this class tonight have ever touched a dead body before. It would have been, uh, it would have been very, very much more common. I mean, in a know remember this is still a world where what percentage of children die before the age of 10 I mean very very few family. one out of it, uh, what percentage of women die in childbirth I mean very very few families which will have not have had you know w- multiple deaths um, in the family so it's um it's uh, it's a big deal do- yeah and as Tom Hillman points out weeks were held at home yes yes exactly um, so uh so yes that it's it's again another thing. not only are they not thinking zombies and vampires when he says that, but again it just would have been a simile it's a simile, right? It would have been a simile which actually would have helped them to understand this is how cold this guy's hand was. His hands were super cold, right, just like the hands of all the corpses that you've touched, right oh okay, yeah, right um, um okay, all right, good, what else? what else, Dracula? I only slept a few hours when I went to bed, and, feeling that I could not sleep any more, got up. I had hung my shaving-glass by the window and was just beginning to shave. Suddenly I felt a hand on my shoulder and heard the Count's voice, saying to me, "'Good morning.' I started, for it amazed me that I had not seen him, since the reflection of the glass covered the whole room behind me. In starting, I had cut myself slightly, but did not notice it at the moment. Having answered the Count's salutation, I turned to the glass again to see how, uh, how I had been mistaken.' This time there could be no error, for the man was close to me, and I could see him over my shoulder, but there was no reflection of him in the mirror. The whole room behind me was displayed, but there was no sign of a man in it, except myself. Exactly. Arthur's saying, Vampire! Right? Of course. Right? This doesn't even surprise us. Remember... We don't know any of this stuff, right? We have no association pre eighteen ninety seven. We have no association between vampires and mirrors, right? That is absolutely not in the public knowledge. So, the reaction that we as if we we're trying to imaginatively put ourselves back into the eighteen ninety seven point of view, our reaction it's going to seem simply strange and uncanny, just like Jonathan's experience of the night before, right? Like, whoa, what does that mean? Right? Notice the implication of Jonathan's word choice. There was no sign of a man in it except myself. Right? Is he no... Is he not a man? Is the? Why doesn't he appear in the mirror? What's... What could possibly explain his lack of appearance? His not casting an image uh, in a mirror? Um... Yeah, and yeah, created. He, he didn't realize there are no mirrors in Castle Dracula. Um, he didn't realize that Jonathan had brought a mirror in his luggage. Jonathan is standing. He has a, just a little small shaving mirror that he brought, right? And so he's uh, he's standing up close to that shaving in his shaving mirror. So when Dracula comes in, he can't see the mirror. He just sees the back of Jonathan's head. Uh, that's uh, how that's uh, how that appears to be described. And Andrea, yeah, he's he's seriously weirded out. But remember, why should he be scared? I mean, it's deeply weird. It's very uncanny, but it doesn't mean like, he doesn't know what to make of it. It's a it's a, a a bizarre piece of data that he has no idea how to parse. Right? What on earth could that mean? I mean, notice it's 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 almost like there's like an open question. He doesn't know if 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 there's something wrong with Draco or there's something wrong with himself. Like, is it me? Why am I not seeing that guy in the mirror? Right? Um. So, uh, yeah, it's it's again we would be freaked out, right? Um, I mean, I think to uh, uh, hear Curtis, I'm thinking about Buffy and Angel again. Uh, in uh, you know, in those series, like Angel is always very careful never to be seen around a mirror, right? Because if anybody get, get, sees that his reflection doesn't show up in the mirror, it's going to be like dead giveaway that he's a vampire, right? That's how it is for us, right? You know, If we see somebody who's not reflecting in the mirror, we're immediately thinking vampire, we're immediately thinking, at the very least, like there's something deeply wrong with you, that you don't appear in mirrors, right? But Jonathan doesn't have anything like those kinds of associations. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Carrie says, "Can we feel Jonathan stacking up a list of oddities that he must not think about yet?" Yeah, Carrie, we're going to come back and look at that. Um, my, it, it is my part of my optimistic goal is to um, uh, is to get back to looking at Jonathan. At this, I, I love looking at. Jonathan's kind of commentary about his own processing of things, watching Jonathan's perspective change uh, over the course of these first few chapters is really is really fascinating. <laughs> Caritas says maybe all foreigners don't appear in mirrors, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. Be, you never know, right? I mean, they might do things differently in Transylvania, <laughs> right? You never can tell with those foreigners. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, okay, okay. So, but. This is in the category. Uh, like this is. Uh, so there are several things, several things about the count which seem just kind of odd, right? And there are several things about the count which seem to be definitively supernatural, right? Uh, some things which are idiosyncratic, other things which are actively alarming, right? And this does seem to be in the actively alarming category. Uh, now, Kerry, you're right that he. He doesn't jump to conclusions, right? That's not Jonathan's way. He doesn't panic about it. Um there is almost a sense in which he's just kind of pushing that away to put that together with some other data and think about it later on. Um, but um uh but anyway, yeah. Uh, James, you're right. The walls of physics are 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 purely English as they should be. Absolutely. Uh yeah, so if he doesn't uh, if he doesn't uh, uh if he can't be um I mean, you know, foreigners can't all be expected to comply with uh, uh, good English laws of nature. Um, Okay, more on the subject of actively uncanny things. Uh, "'What I saw was the Count's head coming out from the window. "'I did not see the face, but I knew the man by the neck and the movements of his back and arms. "'In any case, I could not mistake the hands, which I had had so many opportunities of studying.' I was, at, I was at first interested and somewhat amused, for it is wonderful how small a matter will interest and amuse a man when he is a prisoner. as after he's now panicking about being a prisoner. But my very feelings changed to repulsion and terror when I saw the whole man slowly emerge from the window and began to crawl down the castle wall over that dreadful abyss face down, with his cloak spreading out around him like great wings. Uh, notice Count Dracula like Balrogs, does not have actual wings, just simile wings. I want to make sure we're perfectly clear on this so we can head off that does Dracula have wings uh, internet controversy right uh, 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 in the bud there. Okay, at first I could not believe my eyes. I thought it was some trick of the moonlight, some weird effect of shadow, but I kept looking, and it could be no delusion. I saw the fingers and toes grasp the corners of the stones, worn clear of the mortar by the stress of years, and by thus using every projection and inequality, move downwards with considerable speed, just as a lizard moves along a wall. Um, yes, uh, Philip, uh, Philip is uh, noting that Jonathan is finally experiencing terror, right? Yes, exactly. Good, good. Um, <laughs> but no, Arthur, he's not an end. I know. Yeah, their fingers seem to freeze onto rock. Yeah, no, it's it's not like that. Um, uh, now, one thing to notice: this is not a case of Dracula moving down a smooth wall like on sticky pads, like a spider. Okay, um, how do we know this? We know this for a fact. How do we know this? Wait, shoot, we don't know this by the end of chapter three. Never mind. Never mind. We'll come back. Uh, point is, Jonathan's going to climb down this same wall. So, uh, not face down. Feet first. But he's going to climb down the wall himself, too. So there's obviously... The stones of the wall are obviously rough enough that he gets can get finger and toe holds for a normal human being to be able to climb down this same face. Um, so it's not utterly... Uh, Spoiler word from chapter four. Jonathan will climb the wall. Um... I'm not going to tell you where he goes and why, but uh, he climbs down the wall. Um, so, uh, so, anyways, the point is it's important for us to, to not imagine him just, like, walking down a really smooth wall. Um, this is not really a Spider-Man effect, necessarily. <laughs> Maybe all foreigners climb down Paul's face. Karina, at some point in this class, you're going to make that joke and it's not going to crack me up, but that might not actually happen. Um... Okay, yeah. Um, Nancy, good. Nancy said he holds on with his toes. Is he wearing shoes? He seems not to be wearing shoes, Nancy, as far as we can t- I mean, I get shoelessness out of that. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, that, but I mean, at that point, like, <laughs> by the time his feet emerge from the window, and he's noticing the bare toes, if he does indeed have bare toes, I think um, uh, I think uh, that's sort of the least of the least alarming element of what's of what's going on here. Um, uh, notice that this is the thing that um, first and most thoroughly convinces Jonathan that the count can't really be a man. Right, he's this. He is this, he is not human. This is the first thing that he's done, which is plainly, obviously, manifestly inhuman. Right, not just supernatural, inhuman. Right, there is something like and and he compares him to a beast. He's like a lizard. Right, um, moving downwards with considerable. So he's not just like carefully going down and just. He likes climbing down, uh, you know, face down, uh, for the challenge of it. Um, but rather, he he just naturally does it, um, as if he were as if he were a lizard or something. Um, yeah, James, I'm not sure what to make about the cloak. I, I mean, it could be the wind as much as anything. I mean, and w- even what exactly with this cloak spreading out around him like great wings. Um, <clears throat> I don't. I'm not sure exactly what that means. Like, does that mean that his cloak is not hanging down, that it's flapping? I don't, I don't really know. Um, I mean, he's going down fairly quickly, and there could well be a wind. It's, the physical description of it there is not really clear to me. It could be hanging down, possibly. Is the cloak defying gravity? Joyce, that's exactly the question. I don't think we have enough clear evidence to say the cloak that he's wearing is definitely defying defying gravity. Um but, uh, yeah, Matthew Good. the allusion to wings, adds to the animalistic comparison Jonathan is making. I agree with that, Matthew. Um, that seems to be the whole point of him uh, uh, alluding to it, right? He looks... Dracula is now, in Jonathan's mind, clearly in the category of monster, right? Not human. He still doesn't... He just still doesn't get what it is. He still doesn't understand, but he's clearly... He's clearly not human. But what's he like? Okay, so we've talked about some peculiarities of his behavior. Uh, we've talked about um, you know, some of his likes and dislikes, right? But what about his personality? No, it's not a Holocaust quote, quote Arthur. Um, what about his personality? But count, I said. You know and speak English thoroughly, he bowed gravely. I thank you, my friend, for your all-too-flattering estimate, but yet I fear that I am but a little way on the road I would travel. True, I know the grammar and the words, but yet I n- know not how to speak them. Indeed, I said, you speak excellently. Not so, he answered. Well, I know that. Did I move and speak in your London? There None there are that would not know me for a stranger. That is not enough for me. Here I am noble. I am boyar. The common people know me, and I am master. But in a, but a stranger in a strange land he is no one. Men know him not, and to know not is to care not for. I am content if I am like the rest, so that no man stops if he sees me, or pause in his speaking if he hear my words, to say, "Ha ha, a stranger! I have been so long master that I would be master still, or at least that none other should be master of me. So, what do we learn about Dracula here? Gerald, I agree. Very class-conscious, very class-conscious and holds himself in high regard. Yes. Yes. And Gerald, as you point out, Jonathan is going to be right there with him. Right? That's not going to seem weird to Jonathan at all. Right. I mean of course he's a noble. Of course he wants to be treated with the respect that he is due. Right. The idea that he's an aristocrat and wants to be treated as an aristocrat, Jonathan's not gonna have a problem with that, right? That's that's fine, right? Um uh, Penny, he's learned English out of books. Right? He's he's learned his English out of by reading books. Um but that's why he says, he says to Jonathan in this conversation, he's, uh, what he's just been saying is that he, you know, it is from you, Jonathan, he says, that I trust that I know it to speak, right? Not just to, not just to read. Clearly when Jonathan says you know and speak English thoroughly, uh, he means I can un- you, you can understand me and I can understand you perfectly well. We're communicating perfectly fine, right? That's not what Dracula wants. What does he want? He wants respect, Gerald, as you point out, and yes, James, he wants to be able to move around unnoticed. That's the other thing that he suggests, right? Um, notice we have it's that's kind of sandwiched between the two other things, right, or between the two other references to the same thing—that is his own high station, right? Here I am, noble, I am boyar. The common people know me, and I am master. And I would like to keep that up, right? I want to be held as a master and not to be looked down upon by English people when I'm over there, right? And he comes back to that at the end. I've been master so long that I would be master still, or at least that none should be the master of me. So it's about mastery. It's about respect. But in the middle, James, you're right. He drops that reference, right? Um, It's I I am content if I am like the rest... Uh, uh and that no man stops if he sees me right yeah i want to blend in i want to not stand out um yeah um a stranger in a strange land yes both uh uh both sarah and tom uh have picked up on the uh the biblical reference there uh the, the blue for lady is thinking of dune which is which is yes also talking about that um yeah, he doesn't want to call attention to himself. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. He is. That's Kimber. You're right. It's exactly what he's plotting to do is to is to blend in in England. Yeah, um, yeah. Joyce, um, Joyce asks, are we as readers encouraged to hear mispronunciations? Um, I, yes, I think we are. I think we are. Again, that's, that I think is why Jonathan talked about his strange intonation. Um, he replicates his, um, strange word choice and sometimes word sequence, right? And to know not is to care not for. That's not how English people would speak, right? Um, but the fact that he told us that he speaks in a strange intonation as well does mean that he's also speaking in an accent as well. Um, yeah. Good. Good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, yeah, Carita, you're right. There's a kind of, um, there's a kind of irony there, right? I want to be treated as a noble, but I want to be not noticed. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can see potentially sort of a conflict in, um, in, in the Count's own plan, the Count's own, uh, desires here. Um, And yes, Brandon, we get the implication that Jonathan here is being made to be a part of Dracula's plan. This is still very early on in Jonathan's visit. Um, He doesn't really think about that or, you know, doesn't see anything sinister in that. Um, But yes, this is clearly part of the the point. You know, I'm kind of guessing that they probably could have signed the papers remotely, right? Having Jonathan actually hand-deliver like the you know the the uh the the transfer of uh uh, you know like the the transfer of the deed documents and everything that he brings him for him to sign um probably could have just done that when he got to england right but i don't think it was necessary for jonathan to make the whole trip just to just to do that but dracula requested it um and yeah it's clear that he had a that he had a that he had a plan, um, boyar, uh, boyar. Uh, it's it's the local name in in that in, in in his land. That's what the that's what the the, the local lord nobleman uh, was called. Um, yeah, uh, Dracula sprinkles in a bunch of uh, uh, local color. Arthur says it's equivalent to count. Yeah, yeah, exactly, count. Count Dracula would be like the English translation, basically, of his uh, of his of his of his title. Okay, but so uh, more on his uh, his proud heritage, right, and his uh, his uh, aristocratic background. And by the way, I apologize for my horrible pronunciation of like the uh, Romany names and things. We 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 Sekeli? It's a. Uh, Sekeli? Sekeli? I don't know the plural. Sekeles? Anyway, we-we have a right to be proud, for in our veins flows the blood of many races who fought as the lion fights for lordship. Here, in the whirlpool of European races, sorry, I forgot to do Dracula's voice, the Ugric tribe bore down from Iceland the fighting spirit which Thor and Woden gave them, which their berserkers displayed to such fell intent on the seaboards of Europe, aye, and of Asia and Africa too, till the peoples thought that the Werewolves themselves had come. Here, too, when they came, they found the Huns, whose warlike fury had swept the earth like a living flame, till the dying peoples held that in their veins ran the blood of those old witches who, expelled from Scythia, had mated with the devils in the desert. Fools! Fools! What devil, or what witch, was ever so great as Attila, whose blood is in these veins? He held up his arms. Okay. So he does boast uh, uh, a noble history, right? Um He um <laughs> No Michael, he's not he didn't eat Attila the Hun. He's descended from Attila the Hun. His the, the Attila's blood is in his veins in per, by perfectly normal genetic methods. Um Good, so blood is very important to him. What about what about blood is especially important to him. What kind of aristocracy does he most value? The fact that his family has been a noble family for a long time, clearly important, right? Yes, Ellen, it's the fighting background. It's the it's the it's the power, it's the savagery, yes. Uh, the mighty, the victors, uh, says Lee, absolutely. Warrior kings, um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, he loves the fact that he is descended from... So notice that the two, uh, the two uh, bloodlines that he's particularly talking about here are first... Till the Hun, well, second, till the Hun, and first, the berserkers, the Vikings, right? The Ogruk tribe bore down from Iceland, the fighting spirit which Thor and Woden gave them, right? So, some Vikings came in, right? And they, they, their, their berserker spirit, you know, the, 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 the fighting spirit, their fighting spirit, the of the berserkers was displayed to such fell intent on the sea, seaboards of Europe. And of Asia and Africa, right? They they fought and won everywhere, those Vikings, right? So the people thought the werewolves themselves had come. Remember, and we're going to look at this passage in a little bit, because we're totally getting there. Um, remember that uh, all of these, you know, when Jonathan first heard the peasants all talking about witches and werewolves and Satan um in the in the coach he was like i must ask the count about these superstitions right well we don't actually see him ask the count about these superstitions exactly but um but he's he's in fact fulfilling jonathan's desire right he's telling him all about those super, those superstitions in fact he's openly laying claim to all of it right Those, uh, those Vikings whom people associated with werewolves, like, when they went berserk, it was like they were werewolves or something? Like, yep, yep, I'm descended from them. And the Huns, right, which were supposed to be from witches, uh, who had mated with devils? Yep, yep. So, like, on my mom's side, right, I'm from, like, the devil-mated Scythian witches, uh, of Attila the Huns family, and on my dad's side, you know, from, uh, uh, the berserker werewolves from Iceland. Yep. Yep. Um... Uh, exactly, Brandon. He is the culmination of all of these different peoples that was added to the, uh, you know, the local, the, the Sekulias, you know, the sort of the local aristocracy as well, you know, influenced by all of these, combined all of these things. Right. Okay, so he's a fighter. He's a warrior. He's not just a snob, not just my family who's been around for a really long time. And he, 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 it's not wealth that excites him, right? He, 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 you know, some, some aristocrats... Wealth is the big deal, right? Wealth is not the big deal um, uh, for him. He doesn't care about wealth. Um, he doesn't even care about like influence. He doesn't care about. I mean, it's interesting because he talks about fighting and and um, you know and battle. Isn't talking, but you know, he's not like imperial, right? That is he doesn't he's not boasting about like the amount of territory that we have amassed that's not even that's not even it either it's the fighting spirit right that's what really matters to him um and yes Tomas uh, has a lot of patriotic pride uh there as well um exactly Carita. he cares about being master and lord and that means you know having the spirit uh to uh, uh to oppose others and to defend your land that's what he uh, uh, emphasizes when was when was redeemed that great shame of my nation the shame of Kasova when the flags of the of the Volok and the Magyar went down beneath the crescent who was it but one of my own race who as Voivoda crossed the Danube and beat the Turk on his own ground that this was a Dracula indeed "'Woe was it that his own unworthy brother, when he had fallen, "'sold his people to the Turk and brought the shame of slavery on them!' "'Was it not this Dracula, indeed, who inspired that other of his race, "'who in a later age again and again brought his forces over the great river into Turkeyland, "'who, when he was beaten back, came again and again and again, "'though he had to come alone from the bloody field where his troops were being slaughtered, "'since he knew that he alone could ultimately triumph?' "'They said that he thought only of himself. "'Bah! What good are peasants without a leader?' Where ends the war without the brain and heart to conduct it? Okay. So, um... Yeah. um, James, Penny... Yeah, it seems to be... Yes. That he, um... is talking about himself here. Now, we're not told that explicitly here, right? Jonathan doesn't... Uh, Suspect this exactly. Notice, there's that line that Jonathan says. You know, says, when Dracula talked about this stuff, there were times when he was speaking. You know, you know, Jonathan's like he identifies with his family history so closely that it's like he's talking about his own actions when he's talking about his ancestors, right? Um, but you get the impression that actually, yeah, he is talking about, in fact, his own self. Um, it seems relatively safe uh, to say that now this was a Dracula indeed. Is he talking about himself? Eh, not sure. It's pretty clear at the end. So he says, um, there are two good Draculas that he points to here, right? One was the one who, as Voivoda, crossed the Danube and beat the Turk on his own ground, right? This was a Dracula indeed. Though he had an unworthy brother who brought the shame of slavery on them by selling his people to the Turk, so that was bad, but the good brother was good, right? Um... And that good Dracula inspired that other of his race, who in a later age, again and again, and that one seems pretty clearly to be him, right? You can tell on account of how he responds, he still remembers the criticism, right? They said he thought, he, they said he thought only of himself, bah! right? Yeah, that seems to be kind of touching on a sensitive personal point there. That one, the one uh, who had to come alone from the bloody field where his troops were being slaughtered, appears to be him yeah um is it possible that the dracula indeed from an earlier age was him as well yes yes he could be merely attempting to retain the fiction that he hasn't lived for centuries so you know he's adding that business about the um about the uh that other of his race he might perhaps be slightly insincere about that that's also possible so I'm uh, 100% certain that that second Dracula the one who uh, the you know thinks so ill of peasants uh, uh, is 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 clearly him the other one it seems quite likely to be him as well. He's a determined character so, but but notice so just as before we were noticing that he was big on fighting spirit but not necessarily big on conquest right he didn't care about acquiring territory and subjugating other nations just holding his own and winning when he got into a fight for lordship they should win that fight right like attila won the fight like the vikings won the fight like the berserkers won the fight um by the way pay attention we're going to get a reference to berserkers later on pay attention when that comes it's kind of cool we'll little, little easter egg that uh uh, Stoker gives us later on. Um, anyway, okay. <clears throat> so, um, but but notice, the fighting spirit thing, he runs away from the battlefield. Right? Um, who, who had to come alone from the bloody field where his troops were being slaughtered. So, the fighting spirit that he is... By, it's not a, like, captain goes down with the ship kind of fighting spirit. Right? This is not, like, we shall win or die gloriously no. No, right? It's um it's uh yeah you got it, Karina. Um but we haven't gotten there yet, so I'm not gonna acknowledge it. Um that sense of self preservation which would appear to be which some, you know, more honor oriented warriors might call cowardice, right? He doesn't care, right? Why did he do it? Not out of cowardice. Why did he do it? Where ends the war without a brain and heart to conduct it? Because he know, he, he's got his eye on the larger goal, right? The longer term goal. Um, and he knows that he alone could ultimately triumph. That's why he leaves, right? Okay, so if he's losing a battle, it's a setback, right? Uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's not ultimate defeat. He's just going to come back and he's going to do it better the next time but it's only him who's capable to do it, so he needs to leave so he can come back. Um, So there's, in other words, we have uh, exactly Sarah. What he does not have is that northern courage, that Norse-like, you know, death in battle is a fine thing kind of attitude. Not at all, right? Um, Instead, what we see is a combination of that savagery and that fighting spirit with a calculating mind. Right when he says, "Okay, this isn't working out." The most, the best thing to do, the most cunning thing to do right here would be to extract myself so that I can come back. Uh, now, having seen how this failed, now I can, I'll, I'll, I'll regroup and come back later on. Right. Um, so again, this seems to be part of his, um, part of his, uh, his, his attitude. Yeah, and James, he does know that he can outlast any opponent. Exactly. Um, yeah the blue fur lady asks was dracula mortal at the time he's describing at this battle i don't know we don't, we don't really know um was this a battle that was being conducted you know while he was undead or not no clue um, but a really good question um, yeah exactly james it's it's uncertain how far apart are the comings again and again right in different generations possibly who knows um but um uh but yeah yeah uh, okay, all right, so we're getting but we should see how we're kind so of building up a sort of personality profile here of, uh, of Dracula. One more uh, one more item, as far as that is concerned. "'Good,' he said, and then went on to ask about the means of making consignments, and the forms to be gone through, and of all sorts of difficulties which might arise, but by forethought could be guarded against. I explained all, things, all these things to him to the best of my ability, and he certainly left me under the impression that he would have made a wonderful solicitor, for there was nothing that he did not think of or foresee. For a man who was never in the country, and who did not evidently do much in the way of business, his knowledge and acumen were wonderful.' That's the other thing about Dracula, really smart, right? And notice what what kind of smart is he, right? He's a particular species of smart. What is what? Wherein does his uh, uh, does his intelligence lie? Yeah, Arthur, it is kind of hard not to laugh from a modern perspective saying that uh, uh, yes the uh, the evil undead monster would make a great lawyer. Yeah I don't think that Stoker's making that joke here because uh, he, I don't think he would make that joke at Jonathan's expense um, but uh, but anyway what kind of what kind of smart is he we do you're right Brandon and Carita, you're both right. Um, he's very bookish. Right, we see him do a lot of. Re- he's very, very thorough and meticulous in his research. Just think of how much effort it would have taken him to compile the English library that he that he has that Jonathan sees. Right, I mean that's, you know, in the days before Amazon, that's non-trivial, right? But what what Dracula has managed to do there. Um... Yes good yeah Patrick he has a very calculating and logical mind absolutely um even penny as you say business acumen is what, uh, is what Jonathan is 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 emphasizing here um yeah 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 he does emphasize his business acumen um Great at contingency planning, Ger- uh, uh, Gerald. Exactly. That's what Jonathan draws particular attention to. Um, and Philip saying the same thing. Very good. Um, he knows how to ask intelligent questions. He's great at planning ahead, right? So this is really important for us to remember. We cannot allow ourselves to think of Dracula as some kind of impulsive emotional monster, right? Um, he is very into the careful planning, right? And anticipating any problems that might arise, but with forethought forethought could be uh, provided against. Um, Okay, so that's an important element of his character that we need to make sure that we pay attention to. Uh, Two more, and then we're done with our personality profile. One of my favorite passages from these chapters... I am glad... speaking, of course, of Carfax, the place that uh, Peter Hawkins uh, found for him, with Jonathan's help. I am glad that it is old and big. I myself am am of an old family, and to live in a new house would kill me. A house cannot be made habitable in a day, and, after all, how few days go up to make a century. I rejoice that... I rejoice that there is a chapel of old times. We Transylvanian nobles... Love not to think that our bones may be amongst the common dead. I seek not gaiety, nor mirth, Nor the bright voluptuousness of much sunshine And sparkling waters which please the young and gay. I am no longer young, And my heart, through weary years of mourning over the dead, Is not attuned to mirth. Moreover, the walls of my castle are broken, The shadows are many, And the wind breathes cold through the broken battlements and casements. I love the shade and the shadow and would be alone with my thoughts when I may. Somehow his words and his look did not seem to accord, or else it was that his cast of face made his smile look malignant and saturnine. Um. (laughs) I'm just going to make this joke because I can't resist. Um that sequence, I've always found intentionally funny. Um, Much sunshine and sparkling waters which please the young and gay. I am no longer young. So, uh, <laughs> I'm no longer young. Uh, but notice he hasn't uh, made a statement about whether or not he's gay, right? Um, uh, j- sorry. Um, <laughs> it's it's um, the, the <laughs> Arthur says he was trying not to say that. Yeah, well, see, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just the uh, the parallelism of the structure always. I mean, it, it's kind of he bears out the parallel with gaiety with uh, my heart through weary years of mourning for the dead is not attuned to mirth, so it is technically balanced. But it's so imbalanced in the construction that as he spends so much, many, so many more words uh, addressing the gaiety part than he does the youth part, um, it, which is so clearly balanced um, that that always made me that that, uh, that that made me giggle since the very first time uh, uh, I read I, uh, I, I I I read this. Um, of course, I guess, of course of course of course. I'm just making a joke. Relax, relax. Okay. Yes, gay in the older sense, obviously. Who is he mourning? We don't know. An excellent question, James, right? Um, Weary years of mourning over the dead. Is he actually speaking of his own experience? Are there, in fact, those that he has loved who are now dead and he is left almost alone in the castle? We don't know, right? And Um, it's possible of course that it's just a line right? that he's cooked up that line as a way to sort of put Jonathan at his ease as Jonathan's going to be wondering like why is this creepy old guy living in this old ruin all by himself right and so he's anticipating that and saying you know I am like an old widower and I've been left alone right and everybody else has died okay that's kind of uh that's kind of that's kind of plausible um but um but I don't know i mean I, I it seems possible that there are in fact dead that he is mourning, and I don't think that's necessarily himself uh as as, as Matthew is suggesting um. Yeah no but James you're right James points out the significance of that follow-up sentence which indeed is why I included that somehow his words and his look did not seem to accord or else it was that the cast of his face made his smile look malignant and saturnine right um that is to say he doesn't seem to be his words make it sound kind of nice right I like dark, shadowy places, right? I live in this old place full of memories, and I would kind of like a place that was sort of like this, right? Um, but his smile looks malignant, right? There's, that's the discord that Jonathan seems to perceive, right? He's speaking of sadness, right? Of melancholy, even. Um, he's depicting himself, as living this kind of mel- you know, solitary, melancholy existence, which he'd quite like to carry on uh, 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 living while in England, right? Um, but his expression is not melancholy. It's malignant and saturnine. Um, so... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. All right, um one more thing, and this is, uh, we're coming back of course to a passage that several of you wanted to talk about before, when uh, um, and yes, James, uh, uh, how few days make up a century is pretty cool in hindsight, yeah, it really is. Uh, A couple of you before were pointing out how you you can hear the immortal speaking there. Um, Yes, yes. Um, Anyway, so back to a passage, when we were talking about the mirror, several of you wanted to talk about, uh, of course, his lunge for Jonathan's throat. We can't overlook that entirely. It's an important point, but I wanted to treat it on its own, separate from the freakily-doesn't-have-a-reflection element. Um, But at that instant I saw that the cut had bled a little, and the blood was trickling over my chin. I laid down the razor, turning as I did so, half-round to look for some sticking plaster. When the Count saw my face, his eyes blazed with a sort of demoniac fury, and he suddenly made a grab at my throat. I drew away and his hand touched the string of beads which held the crucifix. It made an instant change in him, for the fury passed so quickly that I could hardly believe it was ever there. Take care, he said. Take care how you cut yourself. It is more dangerous than you think in this country. Then, seizing the shaving-glass, he went on. And this, this is the wretched thing that has done the mischief. It is a foul bauble of man's vanity. Avay with it! And opening the heavy window with one wrench of his terrible hand, he flung out the glass, which was shattered into a thousand pieces on the stones of the courtyard far below. Isn't that a great line? It is more dangerous than you think in this country. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Carita, doesn't it sound like a like a, a like a, a a a homely sermon right ah this wretched bauble of man's vanity right um <clears throat> it's for people who uh who obviously uh find their own face shapely right um uh, like young miss maggans um no yeah um this is um so, but but yeah i mean it's a moral statement right ah let me give you a little sermon about vanity, right? Away with it. Yeah, now obviously he's not really sincere about that. He just wants to get rid of the mirror um, and is afraid it's already given him away to some extent, right? Um, but, uh, but the rosary. The rosary is the important element here. Okay, the blood is really important too. But the rosary is really important, Right, so he's wearing the crucifix, right? Crucifix on a rosary. This is a very, is a very Catholic thing. He's been giving makes a big deal about the fact that it's a very Catholic thing that that has been put around his neck, right? So we got a We've we got a full rosary here, right? And as soon as his hand touches the string of beads, the rosary, it makes an instant. The fury just vanishes so quickly that he he like Jonathan does a double take did he go crazy just then, or did I go crazy just then? Seems to be what Jonathan is asking himself here, right? Um, yeah. Um, Andrea, yeah. Dracula doesn't freak out with the rosary as one would expect. No, he doesn't. No, Jonathan's been wearing it the whole time. Ever since he arrived. He's had it around his neck since the peasant lady put it around his neck. Um, back on like page five, so um he's not recoiled from it. he's not been repelled by it he doesn't his hand doesn't burst into flames or even get singed right um, so we, but what we do see is that his fury vanishes as soon as his hand comes in contact with the rosary. Okay, that's the second thing we see. The first thing that we see is that the sight of blood makes him totally lose control of himself. And that's a a really neat observation. Oh, wait, who made that neat observation? Where was it? Kimber. Uh, Kimber Nelson says it's strange that he sees, not smells, the blood. Beasts would usually smell blood, right? But it's not until he actually sees the blood on Jonathan's face that he freaks out, right? Excellent point. Excellent point. Um... Yeah. Okay. So not quite sure how to parse this yet, right? But one of the things that I'm wanting to do here is not necessarily draw conclusions of course about Dracula the character from all these passages that we're looking at, but we just need to accumulate data, right? We need to we need to get this so that we can hold it all and and put it together with other pieces that we'll get later on. Um Yeah. Yeah. Eh, Kimber, you're right, it's a little uncivil of him to throw his guest's stuff out the window, but it's morally improving, right? So that's okay, right? I I, I guess. Um, Jonathan certainly thinks it's uh but, but anyway, okay, let's uh uh let's read possibly the f- most famous pa- no, possibly. Let us read definitely um, the most famous passage from uh, these first three chapters, Jonathan and the three vampire ladies. Observations, please. <clears throat> Observations from the text, please. I seemed somehow to know her face, and to know it in connection with some dreamy fear, but I could not recollect at the moment how or where. This is the the fa- there were three women, two dark one fair. That just means their hair, so that two are brunettes and one is blonde, is what he means. Um, All three had brilliant white teeth that shone like pearls against the ruby of their voluptuous lips. There was something about them that made me uneasy, some longing, and at the same time some deadly fear. I felt in my heart a wicked burning desire that they would kiss me with those red lips. It is not good to note this down, lest some day it should meet Mina's eyes and cause her pain, but it is the truth. They whispered together, and then they all three laughed, such a silvery, musical laugh, but as hard as though the sound never could have come through the softness of human lips. It was like the intolerable, tingling sweetness of water-glasses when played on by a cunning hand. The fair girl shook her head coquettishly, and the other two urged her on. One said, "'Go on.' "'You are first, and we shall follow. "'Yours is the right to begin.' "'The other added, "'He is young and strong. "'There are kisses for us all.' "'I lay quiet, looking out under my eyelashes "'in an agony of delightful anticipation. "'The fair girl advanced and bent over me "'till I could feel the movement of her breath upon me. "'Sweet it was, in one sense, honey-sweet, "'and sent the same tingling through the nerves as her voice, "'but with a bitter underlying the sweet.' a bitter offensiveness, as one smells in blood. I was afraid to raise my eyelids, but looked out and saw perfectly under the lashes. The fair girl went on on her knees and bent over me, fairly gloating. There was a deliberate voluptuousness, which was both thrilling and repulsive, and as she arched her neck, she actually licked her lips like an animal, till I could see in the moonlight the moisture shining on the scarlet lips and on the red tongue as it lapped the sharp white teeth. Lower and lower went her head, as the lips went below the range of my mouth and chin, and seemed about to fasten on my throat. Then she paused, and I could hear the churning sound of her tongue as it licked her teeth and lips, and could could feel the hot breath on my neck. Then the skin of my throat began to tingle, as one's flesh does when the hand that is to tickle it approaches nearer, nearer. I could feel the soft, shivering touch of the lips on the supersensitive skin of my throat and the hard dents of two sharp teeth just touching and pausing there i closed my eyes in a languorous ecstasy and waited waited with beating heart whew, okay <clears throat> all right um very sensual penny i absolutely agree with you absolutely agree with you. Okay, good. Joyce points out we've got the three uh, ladies, which it's hard not to be thinking of Macbeth's three witches or the three fates. Um, yes, yes, lots of uh, possibilities there. The fact that there are three of them seems, um, uh, seems uncoincidental in that way. Um... What do you notice about the imagery? How does he talk about the women? How does he describe them? Do you notice patterns in his language here? We get a couple different strands. Karita, good, animals. That's one, right? Um, she is she acts like an animal there's a deliberate voluptuousness voluptuous is one of uh, uh, is one of Stoker's favorite words um, there are some like whole chapters of this book which is like brought to you by the word voluptuous um, uh, anyway so yes yes this uh, good yes um, and again it's like uh, actually licked her lips like an animal right so there's a like a bestial like it's like a a primal element to the women but that's not it what else what else let me go back a minute look at the pattern of the imagery at the beginning um all three had brilliant white teeth that shone like pearls against the ruby of their voluptuous lips, and then uh, they whispered together that all three laughed such a silvery musical laugh, but hard as though the sound never could have come through the softness of human lips. It was like the intolerable tingling sweetness of water glasses when played on by a cunning hand. yes, Rachel, inhuman, inhuman, like their voices. Um, but notice the women are inhuman in two different ways. They're inhuman in the sense of being subhuman, like an animal, right? Um, she is like an animal about to what? This is not a trick question, right? Because, I mean, yes, it's sensual. Yes, it's sexy, but she's not behaving like an animal that's about to have sex, right? That's not the that's not the kind of bestiality that we're the, the kind of bestial nature that we're seeing there, right? It's like an animal about to eat, exactly, exactly. Um, and like the, I mean, again, he's kind of turned on by this whole thing, as he freely admits, right? But but it's so There is she's going to kiss him, right? They 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 said it was kissing, right? So this whole thing, the context of this is kissing and yet she's kissing him like an animal about to feed, okay? But at the same time, she is also like something inhuman in a totally different way. Inhuman in the sense of being inorganic, right? her teeth like pearls and her lips like rubies and her voice like the sound that's made when crystal resonates when you run your finger around the top of it, right? Like um, uh, that silvery laugh, right? Her laugh is like silver um, or, like the, or like the resonance of crystal. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um... Jonathan remains still throughout this time. So, okay, so there's two things here that we need to focus on. One is, um, one is the description of the women, right? How, like, yes, it's sexy. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. That, that, that's, there's just no question. But I think it's important for us to see the way in which, through his imagery, Stoker is guiding us to read that. Okay? Um, and the two cues that he gives us are, it is like the feeding of an animal. Her actions are like the feeding of an animal. Um, like your dog... Like, but I just cooked uh, ham for my family today, which involved ham baking in the oven for hours, and like my dog watching me and licking her lips as I was, like, carving the ham afterwards. That's the kind of, that's the kind of image. That's, that's what it sounds like to him. That's what he associates it with. Um, his reaction, right? His reaction is, I think, very important, right? Um, what do we see? What, how does he describe how he feels about this. And I think it's easy to make mistakes about this. Um, I hear a lot of people talk about this passage as if Jonathan is, his reaction is, I shouldn't like this, but I do like this, right? I know I shouldn't, but come on, baby. Right, that's not his attitude. I that is absolutely not. I think if 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 you think of it that way, if you think of it saying we like, it's inappropriate for me in my straight-laced Victorian background, uh, to like a openly sensuous woman like this and this strange woman who is, you know, doing these delightful things to me. But golly, I just really do like it. So you know, but that's not what's happening. It's more complicated than that. You can go there, but that's that's way oversimplifying it. He feels both, exactly Brandon, both fear and desire, simultaneously, right? Both attraction and repulsion, simultaneously and in equal portions, right? He is aware of all the... Because this is not just a, like, again, I know I shouldn't like this, but I do. It's not like that at all. As it's happening, he likes it, and he doesn't like it. In fact with as much of his brain as he is using, he doesn't like it, right? Um, I mean, again, so just looking at some crucial passages here. Um, uh, Okay, there was something about them that made me uneasy, some longing, and at the same time, some deadly fear. Longing, fear, simultaneously, right? Okay, I felt in my heart a wicked, burning desire, that they would kiss me with those red lips he feels a desire acknowledging however that it is both a wicked desire as well as a burning desire the word burning could refer of course to its intensity but also to its quality as well right that is yes he feels desire no question he feels desire but he is aware that it is a wicked desire now that could just be a moral conflict right like oh bad bad boy for feeling desire right possibly possibly and that passage conceivably but but let's um uh let's keep looking so okay i lay quiet looking out under my eyelashes in an agony of delightful anticipation okay so he's really looking forward to this right but then her breath is i think really important sweet it was in one sense honey sweet and sent the same tingling through the nerves as her voice but with a bitter underlying the sweet a bitter offensiveness, as one smells in blood. Um, how's the count's breath? How's the count's breath? Foul, yeah, absolutely. Um, rank, rank is 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 a word that's used. Um, nauseous, it is. It's uh, uh, it actually makes him sick. but the 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 count's breath is awful. Um, the lady's breath is n- more complicated, right? It's honey sweet in one sense, but there's a bitter underlying the sweet. It smells not bad. It smells offensive, a bitter offensiveness as one smells in blood. There's something about blood which is not just it doesn't smell like blood doesn't smell bad in the same way that rotting garbage smells bad, right? That's how the counts breath smells, like rot. Um I mean it's what rank means. Uh, something that's so overripe that it's rotting, right? Um blood doesn't smell bad like something rotten. rotting smells bad. It smells offensive. There's just something in it that sets you on edge. Something wrong about the, spell, about, about the smell. You shouldn't be smelling blood. Right? Um, he smells both of these things in her breath. He is aware of both of these things. The honey sweetness of it. Delicious breath but also offensive breath. Why doesn't Jonathan jump when she kisses his neck? I mean, he's anticipating it, right? But that description of the shivering touch of the lips on the super-sensitive skin of my throat, and she fe- he feels her teeth against the skin of his throat... Um. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It seems like he is not, and his description after this seems to bear it out, that he is not in a full, normal state of consciousness here. Um, something is kind of overpowering him. So what is the status of his will here? Has he invited them? Has he engaged his own will with them? Good, Philip, very good, well remembered, Philip Barrett points out that it is significant that Harker took pleasure in ignoring the count's warning not to sleep outside his room. Yes, this is their room. He said before he lay down on the couch. this is obviously the room where the ladies of the of the castle used to be hes He went to their chambers and went and lay down on their couch to sleep, right he did come into this room on purpose, Kurita, And in doing so, he put himself in their power. He does seem to be mesmerized by this whole thing, I think. Um, He's still aware, very aware, hyper aware of everything that's going on. And he, um, again, but, but at the same time, it's both thrilling and repulsive. Again, like, longing deadly fear, thrilling, repulsive. It's not, he's not repulsed at the thrill. Again, it's not just a moral conflict in himself, like I am thrilled, ooh, but I shouldn't be. That's not, that's not it. He is thrilled with desire for her. He is also repulsed by her at the same time. And I, I, I to me, this is this is the most crucial thing. I think that people who miss this are missing the whole essence of this passage. Um, the whole essence of what... And, cause, and I think this is so important because I feel like there's, there's some things that we are shown about vampires and the relationship between vampires and people that we are shown more clearly in this scene than anywhere else in the entire book. I think it's just an absolutely crucial scene uh, for us to understand. And to me that is the really really important thing um, in this description is the fact that he is not only experiencing both things, he is conscious of both things, yeah, Patricia, you're right. He doesn't express guilt only maybe fleetingly in that it's not good to note this down, lest you know i I would hate for Mina to see this description right, but that's not guilt in the same way right he doesn't He doesn't revile himself, you know, so this is not like the moral conventions of his age rising up against the spontaneous sexual arousal that he is feeling in response to, that's not what we're getting here. There is something in the vampire which inspires both fear and desire simultaneously. Uh, Again, simultaneously. And you can be conscious of both and yet go through. And again, back to the will thing, right? There is a part of him that does not consent he is repulsed, he doesn't want it, he is afraid of it, he is repulsed by her, by what she's doing, by all of this this is wrong, he knows that it's wrong he hates it, fears it, loathes it, but wants it right, there's another part of him which consents and goes along right, and it's that division in his will, which I think is so crucial to understand here, and which we'll see uh, coming in again later on um one last detail that, of course, we can't miss, um, with the vampire women, and then I'll have to, uh, then I'll have to, to, uh, to let you go. This is, uh, the latest account, Dracula. He, of course, comes and grabs her by the throat and throws her across the room, just as she's about. She has not, in fact, it seems, broken Jonathan's skin, uh, the skin of his throat, so she has not actually bitten him, though it was pretty darn close. Um, Uh, Oh, and by the way, did you notice something? This is another thing that uh, uh, How is she going to bite him? Did Did you notice the mechanism of the vampire bite in Stoker? This is another thing very different from almost any depiction that I've ever seen in films. She doesn't sink her canines into him like fangs. Um. Yeah. Well, we'll get um, we'll get we'll get more of that. Uh, we'll get more detail of that later. Um, he feels the hard dents of two sharp teeth. It's her top canine and bottom canine, not her two top canines. Um, she's. Uh, this is why, she, like, you think about it when vampires bite in movies, and of course, this is in part to cater to the visual element, right? They always pull their lips back, you know, and uh, bare their teeth, and but it's always the teeth that hit the skin first, right? Notice it's, with her, it's not the teeth that hit the skin first; it's her lips, right? First, she takes the skin of his throat in her lips, and only after that does he feel the teeth, right? so what she appears to be doing is taking a fold of his of his the skin of his neck and she's getting ready to pinch that between her top and bottom canines um why do i think this is important well a because again it's another example of an assumption that we can make that turns out to be not right she does not bite like a snake right that's not how vampires bite um in in bram stoker anyway but I, I think it's imp- because of the sensuousness of it, right? She's it's it is a kiss. It's not just a it's not just a metaphor. The kiss thing is not just a metaphor. It's literally a kiss, right? Um, I mean, it's 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 it looks and acts much more like you know her giving him a hickey than it is like an animal biting. A piece of meat, right? Though, of course, we still had that animal biting a piece of meat element, of course, which he which, which he emphasizes. But, um, but I think it's important to remember that when they're talking about kissing and there are kisses for us all, it's not um, it's not uh, purely metaphorical or not purely euphemistical, right? They're not just speaking coyly, right? Like, and when I say kiss, you know what I mean, nudge, nudge. I don't think that's what they're saying. Um, they seem to think it is because it is. At least when she does it, it's, it is in fact a kiss. Um, and through that kiss comes the, the taking of the blood. Anyway, um, last passage. You yourself never loved. You never love. On this the other women joined, and and such a mirthless, hard, soulless laughter rang through the room that it almost made me faint to hear. It seemed like the pleasure of fiends. Then the Count turned, after looking at my face attentively, and said in a soft whisper, Yes, I too can love. You yourselves can tell it from the past. Is it not so? "'Well, now I promise you that when I am done with him, you shall kiss him at your will. "'Now go, go. I must awaken him, for there is work to be done.' "'Are we to have nothing to-night?' said one of them, with a low laugh, "'as she pointed to the bag which he had thrown upon the floor, "'and which moved as though there were some living thing within it. "'For answer he nodded his head. "'One of the women jumped forward and opened it. "'If my ears did not deceive me, there was a gasp and a low wail.' as of a half-smothered child. The women closed round, whilst I was aghast with horror, but as I looked, they disappeared, and with them, the dreadful bag. Um, that line? Yes, I too can love, you yourselves can tell it from the past, is it not so? That line wins my vote for most tantalizing line in the entire book. Um, spoiler, that will never be explained, so don't wait for it. That will never be explained. We will never, ever, ever get any more information about Dracula's uh, love history than is revealed in that moment. Um, but, uh, yeah, Yana. It does appear that the reason that Dracula went away was to hunt for food for the women. He's come home with a baby in a bag, right? And uh, uh, and hands it over. And no, I'm not going to make joke about jokes about kids' meals or anything like that. Um, the point is, this is. I mean, I agree. This is a. This is a one of the most shocking images of the book. This that 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 how he's aghast with horror at the. Um, you know, the fact that they're taking away this child in a bag um, uh, for uh, um, well for what exactly, for what purpose are they, I mean, we know I don't know that Jonathan knows, does he even know what she was about to do, for sure he felt her teeth on his neck Does that mean he understands what was about to happen? You know, what exactly does he understand, and to what extent does he understand it? What use they were going to make of the baby? But he's pretty horrified. It seems, I mean, his level of aghastness does seem to suggest. um, And yes, Rachel, I absolutely agree. Rachel uh, Oreskovich says it emphasizes the inhuman nature of the women. Yes, I think uh, it is clearly highly uncoincidental that the women, the female vampires, are fed a baby. Um, I put that in the category of deeply non-coincidental. And I want us to be... Pay attention to the pattern here. Look for the pattern of vampire victims. Okay? Um. So... Uh, Anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, okay. Um, yeah, no, the blue for Lady asks, wouldn't it be easier for Dracula to go ahead to England if he changed Jonathan to a minion now? A great question. And... The Count... It's hard to imagine the Count hasn't thought of that, because he thinks of everything, right? Um... But, no. Not part of the plan. Clearly, not part of the plan. He has use for him still. But, uh, but, um, he, he, that does not appear to be one of his uses for Jonathan. Um, okay. Right, I'm going to let you go. Um, so, uh, Yana, you're, Yana was saying before that he really had to know how many slides I actually had. I got through 15 it's a pretty good showing. Um, it kind of um, it's a little less impressive when you find out that I actually had 26 slides tonight. <laughs> uh, um, uh, Alyssa was teasing me because the subtitle of the subtitle of one of my uh, of one of my slides later on is "The onset of madness," and she was teasing me and saying the onset of madness seems apt. Um, (laughs) but anyway, but yeah, exactly, Nancy. I got over halfway through. And anyway, uh, the other, the, the, the next 11 would go super quickly. So we're going to start with those, for those other 11 slides next time. What I want to begin with next time, of course, we'll go, we're going to be looking through the, through chapter four. Chapter four is the end of Jonathan's time in Transylvania, or at least the end of Jonathan's journal that we get from Transylvania. And, um. Then we, uh, uh, then we go back to, to England uh, and uh, meet Mina, his, uh, his betrothed. Um, but what I want, I want to focus next time, if you have time to sort of review and look through, pay attention to Jonathan's Attitude to his changes in perspectives. Um, my the title of the class tonight refers both to Jonathan's changing perspective, which we didn't exactly get to talk about tonight, but also, of course, our own changing perspectives, which is why uh, you know and our own attitude and assumptions as we look back in it. So, it still works. Anyway. Um, look at his chain, Look at his attitude, the way he talks, and the way he responds to things. Um, look at his pattern. Look at his word choice. How he talks about things—it changes drastically from chapter one through chapter four. Um, tell me what patterns you see there, right? What do we see in Jonathan as his eyes are opened to the horror of what's going on here? Then we will shift not only to <clears throat> England but to a female point of view, to Mina's point of view. Um, and uh, we'll continue to see. And this is when it's uh, in Chapter 5 onward that we, be, uh, we begin to be encouraged to play the game of let's figure out as readers what the real story was when the narrator who's telling us the story doesn't really have any idea what's going on, but we know more than the narrator, so we can tell what's actually happening. Um, so that'll be fun, too. And you're right, Nancy, we get, we get Lucy's perspective, too. Lucy Westenra and her many suitors. So Okay, that's enough for next time. Thanks everybody for joining me. I hope that you are enjoying Dracula as much as I'm enjoying talking about it with you and I look forward to more next week. Thanks everybody, good night.